Good morning. Good morning. Have a seat. Enough of the friendliness. That's enough. <laughs> no, it's, it's good to be here. Hey, I would like to begin with a story. Once upon a time, there was a 26-year-old single youth pastor. He was starting to lose his hair, and he wasn't much to look at even before that. He had almost no money and really nothing else to offer as well other than his heart. But he was very drawn to a 23-year-old single kindergarten teacher who was exceptionally beautiful and talented and intelligent and godly and out of his league and highly sought out after by a, a slew of other young bachelors. Well, the young youth pastor befriended the young teacher's trusted brother and one day told him about how much he admired his sister and he wanted to pursue a relationship with her and asked him what he thought. Well, the younger brother of the teacher bluntly said, well, you're a great guy and all, and I think my sister probably can see that and appreciate that, but to just be really honest and blunt, I don't think you have much of a chance. <laughs> you can, of course, try, but I'm pretty sure it won't go anywhere beyond just friendship for a number of reasons, which he then explained. Well, that scared this young youth pastor to some degree, but he couldn't help but try anyway. So he pursued and pursued with all the charm and boldness that he could muster, as well as as many creative dates that he could think of, plus lots of creative gifts to just wear her down so as to hopefully win her heart. Well, six months later or so, he proposed, and she said yes. And after six months or so, they were married. And next Sunday, August 5th, will be our 24th wedding anniversary. So there you go. And um, I was very drawn to Kim from the day we met, but I was also a little scared of rejection, and there was definitely a loud voice in my head telling me to listen to her younger brother named Kendall Wynn, who had told me, hey, you know, you can try, but it's probably not going to work. And that was all because rejection stings, right? Nobody likes rejection. It hurts, and I didn't want to face that. But boy, am I glad I did not listen to him or to that voice in my head. But that's what I want to talk about with you this morning. I want to discuss the fear of rejection as we begin a new series about fear itself and a number of things that we, as God's children, often fear. You know, fear can be paralyzing, but it should not be. God tells us to fear not in one way or another. Sometimes he words it in different ways. But he tells us to fear not over 365 times in the Bible. Yes, that's at least one per day. And yet most of us still let fear kind of eat our lunch a lot of the time, don't we? And in this series, we're going to look at how five of God's key people struggled with fear in a variety of different contexts and how they then learn to deal with it through what God's Word talks about and through a relationship with Him and how we can hopefully do the same as well. We've all heard the phrase, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Maybe you've heard those who don't take chances, don't make advances. But the fear of rejection intimidates most of us anyway, doesn't it? Or at least it has at some point. We don't ask the girl out or we don't try out for the team or apply for that job, or submit that manuscript to the publisher, or talk to our friend about Jesus. 
or even invite them to church, often because of the fear of rejection. And this fear leads many to wear masks and to pretend to be fine and happy and avoid ever letting down their guard and being real or vulnerable with others in anticipation that they might be rejected, which is such a huge fear because they don't want anybody to know the truth of who they really are or how they really feel. And even if we do find the courage to try, we get so nervous that our hands get sweaty and our mouth feels like there's cotton balls in it and we end up saying stupid things that we're embarrassed about, or at least I've gone down that road many times. Maybe you have as well. We're so afraid of what others think, so afraid of this fear of rejection. Well, there's a woman in the Bible. Her name is Leah, who was disrespected by the people who mattered most to her. And Leah met her fears head on and made the most of the opportunities that God gave her. So I want to look at her story together with you today so that we can glean some lessons from it because I don't think God wants any of us to let fear take the place that it often does in our lives. The story of Leah is very intriguing, but it's a little bit difficult to understand because of some cultural differences between then and now, but let's try. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 29. You can find it there. If you don't have your Bible, you can also follow along on the screen or in the printed paper that hopefully you all have from when you walked in. But Leah, apparently, according to Genesis chapter 29, Leah was very plain looking and yet had a younger sister who was strikingly attractive. The Bible puts it like this in verse 16 of Genesis 29, which is where we'll be. Um, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, or your version might say dull eyes, or something to that effect. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful, clearly insinuating that Leah did not. She must not have had that and maybe was homely or something. Comedian Chandra Pierce, who grew up as a pastor's daughter, once told a story when she was a young girl. She said that two uh, older church ladies were standing behind her as she got a drink from a drinking fountain. And she heard one turn to the other as the little girl was drinking from the fountain and say, oh, that's... That's Chandra, the, the new pastor's daughter. God bless her. She's so sweet. She's just not very P-R-E-T-T-Y. And Chandra remembers standing up and turning around and looking at them and said, Well, maybe not, but I am pretty S-M-A-R-T. <laughs> Leah knew, like her, that at a young age she was going to have to play second fiddle to others, including her sister Rachel. And she understood what it felt like to be rejected. And to make things worse, her father Laban was an abusive, conniving man. He was committed to making sure she got married, which is good. But he was completely insensitive and paid no attention to her feelings or thoughts in terms of how he sought to make sure she ended up married. Well, one day a, a new guy showed up in the neighborhood. His name was Jacob. And Jacob naturally fell in love with Rachel. The Bible doesn't say so, but you kind of get the impression by reading the story that Leah actually loved Jacob as well, but she concealed her love and stayed in the background. So when Jacob asked Laban for the hand of his daughter Rachel in marriage, as you read the story, you see that Laban agreed only if, only after Jacob worked for him seven years. Here's how it reads in verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. 
in that romantic, I mean, maybe one of the more romantic verses in all the Bible. Maybe I should use that next week somehow too. I don't know. But, um, but that's, uh, it's a beautiful thought. Verse 21 goes on to say, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. Well, that's pretty blunt, isn't it? A little PG-13 for the Bible. But, um, but it's not that surprising of a statement, considering that he's been waiting and anticipating this moment for seven years. Think about that. That's a long time. But what happens next is a little bit difficult to imagine. But again, let's try. You see, it was a late-night wedding ceremony, and Laban ended up, what he did was end up pawning his older daughter Leah off in place of Rachel, somehow tricking Jacob, the groom, into sleeping with and therefore marrying the wrong person. You think, how in the world could that happen? Verse 25 says very, cl- very clearly, when morning came, there was Leah. Now, Jacob must, I think he must have rubbed his eyes and been like waking up going, Wow, my parents always said that women don't look quite so good in the morning, but you've got to be kidding me, you know. Kim said that was rude on behalf of Leah. I said, well, she's not here, so maybe it'll be okay. But anyway, um, verse 25, Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Well, as you read, Laban goes on to explain that the custom has always been to marry off the older daughter first. And he goes on to explain, you can marry Rachel as well after you wait seven days, but then you're still going to have to work another seven years for me. Well, at this point, as I read the story, I can't help but pause and just wonder, what does Leah think? How does Leah feel about all of this? Ugh. But first, even before we get to that, I also kind of pause and think, wait, how, how did that happen, though? I mean, Seriously, how could Jacob possibly go to bed with the wrong woman and not even realize it until morning? Are you kidding me? How can that happen? Well, I've heard three possible explanations that make a lot of sense. One is that he simply was just too eager. I mean, way over the top with eagerness. He'd been waiting again for this night for seven years. I mean, talk about, you know, feeling like you're about to explode. And since he was in such a hurry, maybe he just literally could not see straight. The night Kim and I got married, and I am so embarrassed to tell this story. I hate telling this story, but it fits so well. I just feel like I got to tell you anyway. It's not flattering, but I'll just tell you the story. So so, uh, Kim and I got married. There were over 500 people there. It was a large wedding, and we had all kinds of people from out of state and friends and relatives that had driven, you know, hours and hours to be there, and the wedding went beautifully well, and I had a limo outside the church waiting, and I, like Jacob, was in such a hurry. I got tired of saying saying hi to all these people, shaking all these hands. My face was hurting from all of that, and I'm like, okay, that's enough. Let's go. Let's go. We got to go, and she goes, no, no, no. Kim was very she was much more wise and thoughtful and considerate of all these people, and she wanted to stay and talk to them. But I, like Jacob, was in such a hurry, I just rushed her out of the, out of the church anyway and said, let's go, and we just drove away and, and left all those people. And, and that was pathetic, wasn't it? I mean, it's just absolutely pathetic. I'm, I'm very embarrassed to have to tell that story, but I can understand how Jacob might have felt in that sense of being in such a hurry. But another explanation is that maybe alcohol was a factor. The Bible says that there was a feast at this time, and the root Hebrew word for feast has to do with drinking. And if you've been around very many parties, you know that oftentimes when alcohol flows, problems often follow. So maybe that was part of the issue. 
But thirdly, he was literally in the dark, literally in the dark. Verse 23 says, but when evening came, that's when he, Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought him, brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. You know, the custom of the day dictated that the bride was heavily veiled and covered, and in some cases, um, history tells us that women did not even take the veil off throughout the entire night. But even if she had, it was still very dark. I mean, think about it. There were no light switches, you know, for gas fireplaces or lava lamps or anything cool like that. There was no light in there. And uh, so even if, as you put all that together, if you think about this possibility of him literally being in the dark, the possibility of alcohol being a factor, and oh, by the way, the fact that he was love-crazed and out of control with eagerness, it becomes a little more easy to understand how this could have literally happened and him literally not realize what he was doing until morning. But again, back to the bigger issue and the real focus for today, and that is, how did all this affect Leah? How did Leah feel, and how did Jacob treat her after they were married? Which, by the way, this was a done deal. Uh, Unlike today where, you know, there might have been an annulment by noon the next day, maybe even a lawsuit or something. In that day, under these circumstances, regardless of how it happened, they were married and going to stay that way. Well, verse 25 again says, So Jacob said to Laban, father-in-law, What is this you have done to me? Now notice that he does not even acknowledge Leah. I mean, let alone engage or really try to talk with her like, Hey, you know, Leah, hey, explain, please tell me what in the world's going on here. He didn't even talk to her. He was shocked and mad at Laban for understandable reasons, and therefore he went straight to him. But I think it's pretty clear there was no place for any love in his heart for Leah. He reluctantly finished the wedding week with Leah. It was a seven-day time frame, and I'm guessing that was a really romantic and wonderful seven nights. But anyway, uh, after finishing that, he then got Rachel, the love of his life. The Bible says in verse 30, Jacob made love to Rachel also, And then, sadly, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. You know, like many of us, Leah understood rejection. She lived it. She felt it deeply. But let's look at how she dealt with it. Verse 31 tells us, when the Lord saw, and notice that word, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, and pause there before we finish the sentence, when he saw that, you know, God saw her broken heart. And I think it is so cool to know that God not only sees, but he actually takes an interest and looks, not not only looks at, but he gets involved in our situations and responds to our hurts. The Bible says here, he saw that Leah was not loved and he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless, which I'm sure broke Leah's heart. Maybe not. That was a joke. Come on. But anyway, Jacob favored Rachel, but God clearly favored Leah. And he blessed her with a son whom she named Reuben, the Bible tells us. Not named after a sandwich, by the way. And not surprisingly, she then made a poor assumption. Verse 32 says, surely, she thinks, surely my husband will love me now. Unfortunately, there is no verse here in the story or anywhere in Scripture that says that Jacob ever changed his perspective and loved his wife Leah. She lived with rejection, this, this, this struggle, all of her life. Verse 33 continues, She conceived again, 
And when she gave birth to a son, that's a second son, she said, because the Lord heard, now notice the difference, heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Now again, with her firstborn son, Reuben, the Bible says God saw her. But with the secondborn, she says that he heard me. I think there is a progression here. I don't think that's a happen chance that, that illustrates that she, Leah, is get, not just getting bitter, she's getting better in the sense that now, you see, here's the deal. God, just like you and me, he knows all and he sees all. But just like you and me, he hears what is spoken. And so I think the teaching of God's word here is that Leah goes from a place of feeling down and just wallowing in the feelings of being down to actually talking to God about it. And that is how he hears her. She is making a change, a progression in terms of how she approaches this. She talks to the Lord about it, and in his perfect plan, he reaches down and blesses her with a second son as she talks to him in prayer about this. Well, she continues to hold out hope against hope, and one night she, in a way we might say unwisely or naively, says this. Again, uh, she conceived a third time now, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, or some translations say attracted, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. Maybe the third time will be a charm, she thinks. But unfortunately, it is not. Now, she names this third boy Levi, meaning in Hebrew, uh, the root word of Levi means to cleave. And so she wanted her husband to cleave to her. Now, not just in a physical sense. That's clearly happening. They have three children together now. But she wants more. She wants his heart. Well, then Leah gets pregnant a fourth time, and something happens, but inside of her heart. Three times she has turned to Jacob, and three times she has been rejected. But the fourth time, instead, she turns to the one who truly loves her. Look at verse 35. She conceived again, this being the fourth time, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, inferring there's a difference between the first three times, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This time, the Bible says, rather than focusing on her rejection and pain, she focuses on her God and his goodness. She is still rejected by her husband. But now she's focusing on the fact that she is loved by her God. And she names her fourth son Judah, which interestingly in, in Hebrew means praise. Praise. I think there are a number of lessons to learn from this story, um, at least four. And I'd like to just take the time we have left to, to share them with you. If you have your notes, you might fill in these blanks. First one is simply this, and I would say this is probably the most important of the four. And that is this. We need to let our self-worth be based on God's opinion of, our, of us, not the opinion of other people. God's opinion matters more than the opinion of other people. You know, if your self-esteem is based on what other people think of you rather than what God thinks of you, you're going to live a very up and down, unpredictable life filled with fear of rejection, trying to be a people pleaser. If you go to Celebrate Recovery on Monday nights, which I would highly recommend you do, because it's for anybody with any kind of hurt, hang-up, or habit, which, is there anybody in here who does not have some kind of hurt, hang-up, or habit, nothing at all? Okay, then all of us should be there on Monday night. It is a fantastic program. Monday nights, a bunch of great people and a great program. But anyway, they call it um, codependency. You'll hear it talked about, others dealing with it as well. 
But if you understand that the creator of the universe sees you and hears you and loves you just the way you are, you are less likely to be so hurt, so deeply hurt by people whose opinions are fickle and whose actions are inconsistent. And you'll be more likely to be joyful and content and comfortable in your own skin because Jesus loves you. And you learn to understand that he truly doesn't just say it. It's not a Sunday school lesson or a sermon alone. It is the truth. He loves you from the inside out. And nothing will ever change that. As Chad talked about last week, he is the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never leave you, never forsake you, and definitely never reject you in this way. Psalm 56 verse 11 says, In God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? In the, if the fear of rejection is knocking at your door, I would tell you this. You need to meditate on and recite to yourself the truth of God's beautiful and holy word like that in Psalms or like this in Romans, in the New Testament, where God says through Paul the Apostle, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Actually, pause and do this. Let's personalize it. Read it like this. Meditate on it like this. Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Trouble? Hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Maybe if you feel like Leah, you could say dull eyes, a lack of a beautiful figure, or whatever else it is that is, is bothering you. The answer is no. No, in all these things, I, put it this way, I am more than a conqueror through him who loves me. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything, in case we miss something, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. If God is for me, who can be against me? There is so much power in God's Word, and you need to learn to meditate on that and let God speak to you and wrap His arms around you through verses like these. Learn from Leah, who when her fourth son was born, turned her self-pity into praise and said, I, have, I may have been rejected by my husband, but I have been selected by my Lord, and I will praise God no matter what the circumstances are around me. We can learn so much from Leah's example. Let your self-worth be based on God's opinion of you, not on the opinion of other people who are fickle, unlike God. Number two, expect some rejection in life, and regard it as a test. A manager who trains salesmen told his trainees to expect rejection at least 95% of the time. He said that if they can learn to deal with that, which of course is not easy, but if they can do that, they can learn to flourish and prosper on just that small little 5% left over. He said the fear of rejection is often worse than the rejection itself, which is what leads so many of them to fail as a salesperson because they just sit in their office so afraid of that rejection. He said the test is whether they can learn to cope with the rejections that everyone faces a large percentage of the time and learn to focus on the successes, even though they may be few and far between. Every one of us, you and me, all of us are going to face the fear of and the reality of rejection in our life. If you're young enough or somehow protected enough in a bubble somehow, some way that that hadn't happened yet, it's coming. We all face rejection in one way or another at times. But if we allow 
it to be, God can use that as an opportunity to help us develop perseverance and character and hope. So says he, the author of all that matters in James chapter 1 and Romans 5 and others as well. It can be a test through which we grow these situations, this rejection. Think about some of the tests that people in the Bible went through and grew through. I sat and just thought about that in my office the other day, and here's some of those that I came up with, and there are probably many others. But think about this. Job passed the test of suffering. Moses passed the test of criticism. David passed the test of loneliness. Elijah passed the test of depression. Paul, the apostle, passed the test of prison and persecution and a thorn in the flesh of some kind. Naomi passed the test of burying her husband and even her two sons. Abraham passed the test of being asked to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had promised the world to him through this one and only son in his old age. Esther passed the test of fear itself and stood up for what was right, against what was wrong, even though doing so could have meant death. Joseph passed the test when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He also passed the test when he had an opportunity to extract revenge from his brothers who had betrayed him and yet instead chose forgiveness. You know, tests are often difficult and painful, but, but they are also opportunities for growth and maturity if we will just allow God to help us see it that way. In fact, they often lead to, in timing, in God's perfect timing, they will lead to blessing and reward. All right, number three, force yourself to take the risk even when you are afraid. Take the risk even when you are scared to death. Leah, notice, Leah did not turn away from Jacob or try to divorce Jacob or retaliate against him. She just kept loving him. Maybe you've heard it said, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is actually the, is action in the presence of fear. I think that is well said. It's not easy to face the fear of rejection, but often, oftentimes the only way to overcome your fear is to step out and take a chance and go for it and trust the Lord to walk with you through whatever comes next, whether it plays out the way you hope and pray or whether it doesn't. Trust the Lord to walk with you through it anyway. Neil Postman quotes a letter written by a high school senior who had received a letter of rejection from a prestigious college he so badly wanted to get into, and he wrote back to the college this letter. Dear Dean of Admissions, I am in receipt of your rejection of my application, and as much as I'd like to accommodate you, I find that I cannot. I've, always received four other, I've already received four other rejection letters from other schools, which means I am now over my limit. Therefore, I must reject your rejection, and I will appear for classes on August 15th. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to reject rejection and keep on going and trusting God to walk with you and see you through whatever comes next, regardless of whether it's what you want or not. Trusting that he who is perfect will perfectly walk with you and guide you through it. No matter what other people do, God will never leave you, never forsake you, and never reject you. Don't be afraid. Again, our Lord tells us over 365 times, at least, things along the line of do not fear. Let me just share with you a couple of favorites of mine. From Isaiah chapter 41, we read, Fear not, for I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. We read in 2 Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. And in 1 John 4, I know this was a big verse or big hit with many of our young people that went to Christ in Youth Conference recently. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, who is, by the way, Jesus, perfect love drives out fear. All right, finally, one more. Get your mind off yourself and on to serving God and others. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, and I quote this all the time. If you know me very well or you've been coming to Impact long, you hear me say this verse often. Not because I have it all figured out, not because I live it so perfectly and need to preach it to you, but because I need to preach it to myself. So I have memorized it, I focus on it, I dwell on it, because I am constantly, as a work in progress, trying to develop to grow more this way. But the Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then God says through Paul, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. In other words, do you need an example? Let me give you an example. He says, be like Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself, and again, this is God's son, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Wow. Jesus sets the perfect example for us in this way, as in so many, in terms of how to get our mind off of self and onto Almighty God and to others. You see, when you're self-focused, you become more likely to be rejected because you also tend to be more needy and clingy and stingy and just unattractive and hard to love. Nobody wants to be around people who just drain everybody else. But when you become others conscious rather than self-conscious, you are much more attractive and you're fun and you're you're, you're giving and you're helpful and you're more likely to have a lot of people who just want to hang out with you. The opening line of the best-selling book by Pastor Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Life, incredible book, simply says, this is the first line, it says, it's not about you. And when we get that concept in life, when we understand that it's not about me, it's not about you, it's, it's, it's about loving God and loving others, and letting God through us change lives. That's what we have written on the wall. That's who we are as a church. We're all about that. Loving God, loving others, and changing lives or letting God do that through us. When we get that, then suddenly life opens up and we find ourselves smiling more and having a sense of purpose and joy and contentment, even confidence. Now, Leah may have been rejected by her husband, but her children needed her. They desperately needed her. And God was using her in ways that she could never even begin to imagine. Maybe that's why Jacob seemed, just maybe seemed, to take a little bit more interest in her as she got older, as they got older. I kind of wonder if maybe she became somewhat more attractive to him over time because of her inward beauty, which helped him get beyond his focus on just the external. You see, the Bible tells us that it was Leah, not Rachel, who was buried next to Jacob in the family grave. 
But her story really has a happy ending in the New Testament. The very first verse of what we call the New Testament, the book of Matthew, um, begins like this. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it lists a whole bunch of genealogies. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and so on and so on and so on, all the way down, several dozen more generations and names, all the way down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, if you listed the mothers instead of the fathers, it would go like this. Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, all the way down to Mary, the mother of Jesus. You see, it was Leah's son, Judah, not Rachel's son, Joseph, who became the ancestor of the Messiah. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, Leah's son. Revelation 5, 5 tells us, um, in anticipation of Jesus' second coming and how we should look at it, tells us, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And again, the name Judah means praise God. Praise God. So God used Leah, an ordinary, plain-looking, dull-eyed, imperfect woman in a marvelous way to give birth to the one who is ultimately called, as we are about to sing, the Lion of Judah, the Lion and the Lamb, the Savior of the world, the one whom we worship and we bow down and we put our faith and hope and trust in. Leah, like all the rest of us, had to learn to deal with rejection. And her life had meaning and purpose and commitment and confidence only when she learned to get her mind off of herself and put it on Almighty God and praise Him despite her circumstances and trust Him despite what was happening around her and allow herself to be used by Him to make a difference in other people and to worship Him. I want to close by encouraging you to remember this. You also, like her, will be, if you've not yet, probably already have, you and I will be rejected by humans. But we have been selected by Almighty God. For God so loved the world, that means you and me, that He sent His only Son that we could be given eternal life. That is who Jesus is. That's what He is here for. So I want to ask if you would, would you stand with me as we sing? Would you stand with me? Let's honor and worship the Lion of Judah, the Lion and the Lamb, and worship Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And if you want to come forward, please do so as we sing.